This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Caroline Petit, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Caroline is an author who was born in Washington, D.C., raised in Maryland, and who now lives and works in Melbourne. She holds advanced degrees from John Hopkins University, the London School of Economics, and the University of Melbourne School of Law. Uh, She published two previous novels in the U.S. called The Fat Man's Daughter and Deep Night. This is her third novel, a sweeping historical novel called The Natural History of Love. Now, what a beautiful book. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, Wow, what a big life you've had. You've moved around a little bit, haven't you? Well, yes, but I actually have lived in Australia for 40 years and I consider The Natural History of Love to be my Australian book. Your tribute to Australia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't know if you listen to that podcast, but I am a big fan of the US and I travel to the US regularly, mainly San Francisco, although I've been to New York several times as well. So I love the diversity of that country very much. And I try and spend a few months there every year. So you've got to tell me where you grew up. I've been to DC actually, but I haven't been to Maryland. So uh, tell me where you grew up and firstly, how you came to Australia and secondly, how you came to writing. Well, I I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C. I I don't know what to say about that. Um, Was it um, a hard upbringing? No, no. Look, I had a very privileged upbringing. My father was a doctor. My mom was English. They came um, after the war from England. My father had studied medicine in England, and it's a very complicated story, but they ended up in Washington, D.C., and then they moved out to the suburbs where my father started his practice out there as a GP. So he was working in the U.S.? Yes, yes. Yeah. But he'd also spent 10 years living in England um, during the war years. Okay. And so uh, did you attend primary school, high school? I attended primary school. I pre- state schools all the way. I had um, I attended primary schools in, in Maryland and um, in winter, you know, these large American, one, one large American high school with football and all those things that happen in American high schools. Tell me about Maryland. I don't know very much about it. Well, you know, Washington, D.C. was carved out of two states. Um, Virginia and Maryland. And, and at the time of uh, when the U.S. was being started, they had, I think they had a, 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 a deciding where they should put the capital. And so they had only 13, I think it's 12 or 13, I think they had 12 states at the time. And that's where they met. And that's where the capital was. And Washington is actually built on the swamp. So the English, when they put up their um, embassy there, they um, had um, 
they got hardship pay because it gets very humid in the summer and it has snows and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, it's uh, It was just a suburban existence, really, sort of like. Did you like school? Were you a reader? Oh, yes. Yes, yeah. I was a re- I was an avid avid reader. I read everything. I was also a very quick reader, and so I used to get excused because I'd already read everything, and they let me go and work in the office, and I got to answer telephones because that and they'd run out of things for me to read. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can imagine. Okay, and so obviously you then went to college. Yeah. Yeah. Talk yeah. to me about that and where you went and what um, you were thinking you were going to do. At that point, were you thinking you're going to be a writer or? Well, at that point, I didn't know what I was going to do. I went to Chatham College, mm-hmm. which is in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. um, and I studied social anthropology. And I just wanted to do that. And um, I spent my summers hitchhiking around Europe. That sounds like an Australian. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> And I still didn't know what I wanted to do after I finished university. Mm -hmm. Um, So then one of my first jobs was I worked on a Navajo reservation as a kindergarten teacher. Um, after and what's what's a Navajo reservation? A Navajo for Navajo Indians yeah. um, in the midst of nowhere in a place called Bread Springs, New Mexico, wow. which has I was there. They had started up new programs for kinders to try and make sure that the Navajo children would get a head start in life with early childhood education. And I knew nothing about education, but they had started this special program to teach people who'd been to university to be uh, deal with small children. Mm-hmm. And I had to learn Navajo, which I can no longer remember, but it's a very complicated language. And it was the language that um, the American army used to fool the Japanese because oh, wow. because you can't crack it. Yeah, wow. <laughs> It's a tonal language. It's, it was fascinating, but I found the isolation, especially because my children would come from far away because they were nomadic and herding sheep. I got a job then in London, yeah, yeah. as you do. And, <laughs> and I worked for the Family Planning Association. And then I I came back to the States and met my husband. I went to I decided I needed to have more education. I went to Johns Hopkins, did a master's in public health. I worked for the National Institutes of Health. I wrote a book on hemophilia and with gaming theory because they were very worried about the American blood banking system and what it would do for hemophiliacs uh, because they were going to give hemophiliacs cryosprecipitate. Anyway, so I did all those kinds of things. And um, then... My husband was in politics. He ran campaigns and he worked for congressmen. And then because I came back to Washington to live. And then who did he work for? He worked for well, he worked for the crime committee. Wow. And then he worked for um, as a top minister of aid for um, a number of different congressmen. And then he was offered a job to go and work for the person who became the treasurer for the state of Florida. So we moved down there. I had a baby. Then we wanted to do a, had another baby. And then, then, <laughs> then, it's a long story. I'm sorry. It's, it must be very boring. No, no, I'm really interested. And then, um, then he was going to run the man who was where the treasurer for the state of Florida to be a senator. 
But Reagan, he was because they're all Democrats he worked for. And Reagan, um, you know, I was really hoping you were going to say that. <laughs> and, and Reagan won big and we lost by just a few thousand votes. He lost mm-hmm. and because we were going to go back to Washington. And then we looked around the world and decided where else we would like to go. And I didn't want to go back to England because I found that I always found the class system to be difficult. Mm-hmm. So we we migrated. We ca- we re- filled out all those forms and we came to Australia and I had I had a bit of family here and we settled in Melbourne and we've been here. And how old were your children when you came? Uh, two and six. That's hard. Yeah. Yeah. And you settled in Melbourne. And settled in Melbourne and I took a job and I worked for the health department. I worked for public. I want to go back to your first impression of this country. Oh, it was a much better place than England because the sun shone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also, uh, I'm trying to remember back that far. Mm-hmm. I, I, what really struck me, the more I stayed here, was how much opportunity there really was in Australia. And if you wanted to do something, you could just really do it. Mm-hmm. Back then you could, couldn't you? Y- yeah. You could. I was thinking about that recently. You know, when I grew up, you know, I think every job I applied for I got. I think that's just what happened. It wasn't just to me. I think that's what it was like back then. Yes, and I, life was was easy. I mean, yes. life was easier. It really was. I mean, yeah. I see my grown-up children now, and yeah. it's hard for them. Yeah. And, and, and it's going to be hard for my grandchildren. Mm. And, uh, and I feel sad about that because... I want to go back to your impression of Melbourne because, and I'm only saying this because, you know, as I said earlier, I mean, I love the United States and I visit there frequently, but I do think, and I wonder if you agree with me, firstly, geographically, like when I come back home, the first thing I notice about Sydney, and it would be the same in Melbourne, is the sky and the light. Yes, yes, that's right. I mean, the sky goes on forever Mm. and the light, it's... It just kind of glows, you know, and then there's that golden light that comes on in the evening. And mm. that golden light, it even in wintertime when it comes down, it just bathes things in a warmth. Mm. And I was really taken with that too, that the, it, it just has this lid of the world that I really found it intriguing. And I was, mm. it's where Was I'm it the from. first time you'd been to Australia when you immigrated? Well, uh, no. Well, what, what, what we did was we thought about it because we had two young children. And so we came over to see if we liked it. Mm-hmm. And because uh, we had a bit of family here and they would send me the newspapers and that kind of thing, we looked at both living in Australia. So we went around to Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra, because my husband was going to be offered a job in Canberra and some other places. And we never went out as far as Western Australia or even got to South Australia. And I just really liked walking the streets of Melbourne. And mm. I did have an uncle who lived here. So it just made, we just felt at home here. And also we felt you could live anywhere. I mean, I know you're living in Sydney and I know Sydney's a wonderful place. I thought we didn't have a great deal of money. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't live on the water in Sydney, there was not much point in being there. 
<laughs> yeah, well, that's, I mean, visitors say that often. I don't live on the water, but I live next to a park. But do you know, for me, and I don't know if it's the same for you, I guess, I mean, you had to choose eventually, but for me, it's about the people. Like when I went to San Francisco this year, as I, as I do, but it was my first time since COVID, so I hadn't been for two or three years, it rained, torrential rain in San Francisco for the first two weeks. And I said to my my friends over there, lucky I'm here for the people. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 No, look, I really found that I was accepted. I was yes. really accepted when I first started to work. I mean, you know, I'd never worked in a public service quite when I first started working for the state. And there were small things that were strange to me. And yet everybody was willing to give me a hand and they gave me a go. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The other thing I was going to say, so we talked about sky um, and light. The other thing is we do speak the same language, well, sort of, but I feel that the cultural difference between Australia and the US is seismic. Yes, I think that that's very true. I think there's a floor here about how society is and who shapes it and that everyone has more of a voice in what's going on in here and that people feel there, there aren't those divisions, I think, Sometimes it's very problematic in the States living there. I think people don't have the understanding. It's so much based on the individual. There's no National Health Service. There's no sense of people. you have to look out for other people because we're all in this together. Mm. And even if there is in certain parts of society, it's it's too easy to divide. And also, well, in the political climate, I don't want to go into too much, but mm. it's very much in the States, it's very much trying to scare people. And there's not a floor of understanding about what makes society really tick. Do you know, I think we've got a bit of that too. And, I, and I'll be really blunt about this. I think conservative governments, they manage or administer a country based on fear, yeah. fear and, and hatred. And that's, I mean, we've seen it here just in the past few years. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just think that that strategy is getting old, you know. I don't think young people are believing it. They're not believing it anymore. They're not feeling threatened by refugees. They're not, they don't hate 
difference. They really are. And hopefully they're, you know, and they'll change things for us in the future. Let's not get into politics because if you do listen to this podcast, you'll know that I, once you get me started, I won't stop. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I do, I do think that. And I think, you know, the difference to population is phenomenal. You know, we've got 26 million here, 25, 26 million. And what is it over there? 280 million or three. I mean, it's over three, three, 300 million. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're dealing with a lot of people and a lot of different people. Um, okay, so tell me how you came to writing fiction. Oh, well, I worked for a very long time mm-hmm. and I've done a lot of different things to make a living. And I just felt I had enough. And if I didn't do it when I was in, in turning 50, I would never do it because I'd been writing a little bit. And so I applied to RMIT, to their creative writing and professional editing course, and got in. And I decided to do it full time, even though I did a little bit of consulting on the side. But I didn't like that because it took me away from how your world, your, your mind works when you're writing for business as opposed to when you're writing fiction. And my husband was very accommodating. My children were older. And we made do. <laughs> And it was it was the best decision I've ever made. Mm. And why is that? Because, well, because you can make things up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the beauty of fiction. <laughs> but also because it gives you time to think about the world and how th- and how stories come to you mm. and that kind of thing. And I just found it to be what I wanted to do. I mean, I've been a constant reader all my life and I wanted to put, make my stories for a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell me about The Natural History of Love. Well, The Natural History... I love the title, by the way. Oh, thank you. Um, the Natural History of Love was... I found the story, actually, when they were tearing down uh, the country property called Mayfield in the suburbs of, well, now the suburbs of Melbourne, in Morty Alec, to make way for a concrete plant. And um, it used to be, it, it was originally lived in by my characters, and it was known locally from the 1930s where the mad Count Edward lived. But his parents were the Count de Casanova and Carolina Fonseca and their older son, Charles. And they, Count de Castelnau was a diplomat, a naturalist, and uh, an explorer. And he'd explored uh, the U.S. He'd explored, spent four years um, in exploring South America, and he went on a lot of other travels as well. And everybody, when I walked through this house, was talking about him. But what really intrigued me was how Carolina had stayed, they'd stayed together as a couple for years and years. And there was a little pricey about their, their life together and how she was the mistress because the Count, when she had nursed him back to health and he was a good 20 years older than her, she was 16, he was 42, that, um, um, th- 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 and already, and she only learned they was already married when they found them in bed together. And he proposed to her on the spot. Then he told her later that he was already married, and they faked a marriage. 
and then they lived this life. And I was just intrigued by this woman to feel that, you know, a mistress is a perilous occupation, really, Mm -hmm. especially in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought, I really like to think about how she dealt with all of this and how she dealt with him, because that was the family saga that I was interested in. And then the son, when they died, the count died much earlier than Carolina. Um, the, the sons had this really cutthroat inheritance fight in the courts because Carolina had disinherited her older son, Charles, and left everything to her mentally ill son, Edward. And I was really intrigued by that, too. Mm. And so I wanted to find out more about everything. Mm. Um, A couple of things about historical fiction, um, observation. One, I am seeing, and you would be as well, I'm seeing women's stories told more and more through historical fiction. In the past, it used to be really we're going to get the male perspective and now we're getting the wife's perspective. And that, to me, is is really changing and focusing on women. They were always there, but we never really heard from them, did we? No, no, not only that, but when the Count died in 1880, he had a very long obituary. Hmm. There wasn't a word about Carolina or the family or anything personal about Hmm. her. And journalists, and they were all male journalists at the time, felt that they could not write a and put ladies in quotes into the articles because no lady would have her name in print. Mm. Well, there you go. But also too, so we're now hearing and stories are now being told about wives and wives pretty much of famous men, but how they were independent and living a life in their own right. But to tell a mistress's story, that doesn't happen that often. Well, she was only, there was no divorce in France. And they did try and have um, to get it annulled, but there was no go. No. Yeah, you know. But I still think it must have been fraught at times. I, I do really believe that. And that's why I have certain parts of the books about where she's not quite sure what's happening, especially when. He gets a he gets the post to become the French consul to Australia in eight in the eighteen sixties, and I think you have to think of you have to women had to especially in her situation had to become learned and 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 share a life a fuller life I think than even a wife because the contract couldn't be broken between man and wife in France especially. So to make herself indispensable was really necessary. And I think that she wanted to learn and she wanted to leave because otherwise she wouldn't have put up with any of it. Tell me, when you're writing historical fiction and you have a lot of facts, you do a lot of research, but you're making a lot up, (laughs) how worried are you that you're either getting it right or getting it wrong as a writer? Well, first of all, I comforted myself by the thought that I'm not writing a biography. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't bother me so much because I have changed things to, because I want my story can only hold so much. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think is 
that historical fiction does, and this is something Hilary Mantel says, that if you want to talk history, you talk history on one level of what things happen. But if you want to know what it's like to be there, you pick up a novel. Mm. And so, Mm. therefore... That's what I believe I was doing. I was telling a story and I was framing it within these time periods. But you have to look through it. I can only look through it through my own 21st century eyes. Mm, Of course. I've asked this question before with historical fiction, but do you get an attachment to these characters? And at the end of it, do you think, well, I liked her or I didn't like her or I liked him and I didn't like him or I wish he would have done this? Or how does that play around in your mind? Because, you know, they're real people. I I, I don't think about it. What, What I do think about is especially when I went to the old files and I found many of what was happening through the court files that had to do with the inheritance case and who was a bastard and all the rest of it, was the excitement of finding things like their actual signatures on documents and the little notes and things Mm. like that that were in the legal files. And it makes it all come alive. It really Mm. does. And so you do get a sense of these people. And and when I was in Paris and I got, I was able to read the correspondence that from the Natural History Museum there in the library there of Francois's wife, and to see how she had tried to push his case to give him the French government to support his explorations in South America. It gave you such a new insight that it was it was exciting in that sense. It's real. Mm. It's a revelation. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Okay, tell me, how did you get it published? You've got a book now. You've written it. How on earth do you get it published? Well, yes. <laughs> Yes. That's, that's a very, very difficult situation. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, well, first of all, um, I, I mean, I, I, through, I have friends who are writers. I tried other publishers and I wasn't very successful on my own. Yeah. And then I have a friend who was, had a, an agent and I asked her if she would mind um, if, uh, if she would recommend me to the agent because we'd met at Veruna and she said yes. And I met, I, I hadn't seen her in a while. I met her at a party, a New Year's Eve party. Mm-hmm. And so I sent it off to my agent, Jane Novak. And oh, I love Jane. <laughs> I was just on the phone to Jane yesterday. <laughs> She's a smart cookie, isn't she? She's a wonderful woman. Mm-hmm. And she took it on. And I was beyond excited. Mm-hmm. But she tried a few places and it didn't quite work out. And then she said to me, she called me up and she said, I'm going to keep on with it. She said, I'm not going to call you until I have something. I mean, I'm not going to ask you whether I should send it here or there. I'm just going to keep on with it. I believe in your work, which was wonderful. And I'll let you know when it happens. And so she called me out, literally out of the blue last March and said, I have someone who firm press might be interested. They've hired a new commercial publisher and she might be a real fit for you. And I've sent it to her and she's very excited about it. We'll have a Zoom meeting because, you know, we're all in lockdown. And it went from there. Well, we love a firm as well. Well, congratulations, Caroline. So wonderful to chat with you. The book is called The Natural History of Love. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.